Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Growth grind. The U.S. economy slows in the second quarter. Taiwan's troops. President Tsai confirms the presence of American trainers. And fossil fuel fantasy. The oil majors face questions over climate disinformation. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Thursday. And today, our COP runneth over with great guests as we preview the COP26 Climate Summit this weekend in Glasgow. Coming up, the largest financier of climate action in developing nations, that's the World Bank, and President David Malpass will be joining us shortly to discuss. Plus, Andrew Forrest, billionaire chairman of Fortescue Metals, with his game-changing idea, transforming an iron ore giant into a green hydrogen powerhouse. How, you ask? Don't worry, I will be asking. Also, the CEO of climate-conscious chip manufacturer Giant Global Foundries, Thomas Caulfield also joins us, testing out the U.S. investment climate today by going public on the Nasdaq. U.S. markets copacetic after a week of Wednesday, now digesting the latest U.S. growth data too. GDP rising at a weaker than expected 2% rate in the third quarter, slowed, as you can well imagine, by Delta variant fears, labor shortages, supply chain issues and rising energy prices. The question is whether we are past the worst or there's more to come. We will discuss that too. Oil in the meantime and natural gas easing today after Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered Gazprom to boost energy exports to Europe. You can see that down across the board. Energy also on the front burner in Asia too, with Chinese stocks under pressure, particularly coal miners. Beijing is reportedly considering price controls to curb hot energy prices. And energetic outrage on Capitol Hill too. Big oil in the hot seat accused of spreading disinformation on the perils of fossil fuels. More on that too in just a few moments. It's a high energy day here on First Move. It's always a high energy day here on First Move. But let's get to the drivers. U.S. growth shifting into lower gear on Capitol Hill. A spending deal still unclear. Little for President Biden to cheer. But the good news is Christine Romans joins us now to discuss it all. Christine, we always say this about growth reports, they're backward looking. So as important as it is to understand what's driving it, perhaps the bigger question for you and I is, what has changed, particularly on the consumer confidence front, I think, because of course, as we always discuss, the consumer is key to this economy. Yeah, and it's so interesting in this report, 2%, that is disappointing, but it is really kind of in line with modern long-term trends, isn't it? We've gone back to a pre-pandemic kind of growth level here, and that's with the Delta variant, that's with fading federal stimulus, that's with a global supply shock. One economist saying this is a speed bump in the economic recovery here caused by a global traffic jam that will at some point work itself out. So a lot of different factors here. A hundred percent rearview mirror, though. If the consumer starts to feel a little bit better about things and tapping into savings more heading into the holidays, that could provide some relief going forward. But again, two percent historically is a number that we've wanted to see bigger, but kind of just settled into this two percent kind of growth range. Two um, percent after all we've seen is a, is a disappointment. And what we've seen is a collapse in the economy. Right. And then a sharp bounce back in the third quarter last year of 34 percent growth and a slow ticking ahead since there 
what you're seeing on your screen right now is clearly a downshift from that very strong fall and spring recovery. Yeah, I mean, you made a great point as well. Pre-pandemic, we would have looked at this and gone, OK, this is where we are. Post-pandemic or transitioning out of the pandemic, we're, we're disappointed. But yeah. again, to your point, too, we've seen far worse in terms of the expectations coming into this quarter. Um, I mentioned Biden for two reasons, though. One, because I believe he's going to be out on Capitol Hill trying to yeah. literally rally the troops and say we have to get this spending deal done. But two, because also it fuels the concerns around the risk of stagflation amid rising price pressures particularly for families out there that are trying to buy food, that are trying to run their cars, um, but also the risk that growth is going in the wrong direction. What do we hear from him today and where are we on this spending deal in particular, Christine? Because I've sort of given up talking about it because we seem to be going round in circles. Yeah, I'll say one thing about this number, this 2% GDP growth number. I I really liked the jobless claims number that we saw earlier today, continuing claims at a post-pandemic low, jobless claims down again. So that shows you that the layoffs have slowed and the labor market might be healing a little bit there. But this this 2% GDP growth, I mean, this could be ammunition for this administration to say, look, we have got, you've seen the federal stimulus, fiscal stimulus waning here. We've got to make the smart investments right now into our workforce. Paid family leave. My goodness, if you've got companies and some senators complaining about a lack of workers, why not give them the most basic, fundamental, uh, rich country right to be able to have have a child or care for a sick relative and not lose your financial security, right? There might be a, a, a moment here for the administration to use this number to try to justify its big its big uh, investment into the in the working class. On the other side of that, you said the word stagflation. You're going to hear the other side say, <laughs> look, Look, mm. we, we got to be really careful here of stagflation. We can't be throwing more money into this mess. So I think both sides could use this number and try to, you know, sing their own tune. Yeah. And one side's more coordinated, unfortunately, for President Biden. So yep. he does need to get his troops on board and all yep. coordinated in that message. Christine Romans, thank you so nice much for you. that. Okay, let's move on. Seismic risks, quote, in relations between China and Washington. That's what Beijing says would result from the U.S. pushing for Taiwan to have a greater role at the United Nations. Meanwhile, in an exclusive interview with CNN's Will Ripley, Taiwan's president confirmed a small number of American military trainers are deployed in the country. Will Ripley joins us now. Will, this was huge. Let's be clear. And congratulations on on this interview. But just to take us back a few days, President Biden at the CNN town hall last week promised to come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked. How was that taken? And what was your sense from speaking to the president about what the nation or sorry, what the island made of that? Well, the White House backtracked that comment, even though President Biden was asked twice and twice he said the U.S. would defend Taiwan because the U.S. has this decades long policy, Julia, of strategic ambiguity, keeping it an open question whether the U.S. military would intervene if China were to invade this island. It's meant to deter an invasion. Uh, So I asked President Tsai Ing-wen, who gave us her first international TV interview in nearly two years, uh, what she made of President Biden's remarks. People have different interpretation of what uh, President Biden has said. Do you have faith that the United States would defend Taiwan if the mainland were to try to move on Taiwan? I do have faith. And uh, given the long term relationship that we have the U.S. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? And you and I have discussed the political and the economic reasons, perhaps for support from from the United States. But this interview has made headlines around the world, let's be clear, because as I mentioned in the introduction, the president also confirmed something publicly that no president has confirmed for what? 
I guess, more than four decades, Will? Yeah, since 1979, Julia. It was, uh, it was a question in the news because there have been reports as of late that a small number of U.S. troops from some sort of you know branch of service, it wasn't clear, are actually on the ground here in Taiwan training the Taiwanese military. We know that the U.S. sells Taiwan $5 billion uh, you know, just last year in weapons, and it's kind of been suspected and and you know inter- there have been these reports here and there that are always backtracked in you know over the years uh, that there are US troops training Taiwanese troops but the leader of Taiwan the president has never publicly confirmed that until this does that support include sending some US service members to help train Taiwanese troops well yes um, uh, we have uh a wide range of cooperation with the U.S. Uh, uh, aiming at uh, uh, increasing our defense capability. How many U.S. service members are deployed in Taiwan right now? Um, not as many as uh, uh, people thought. If you look at the Defense Department personnel records, it shows that in 2018 they had officially 10 uh, U.S. military personnel uh, on the island of Taiwan, and now earlier this year it was up to 32. That's the official reported staff number. Uh, and we know there was a request back in 2018 to bring more Marines in to help guard the de facto uh, U.S. embassy here in Taipei, the American Institute of uh, of, of uh, uh, Technology (AIT), and uh, this is something that is uh, a really, really sticky issue because any permanent presence or semi-permanent presence of U.S. troops in Taiwan would be perceived as an act of aggression by the mainland. Uh, so the foreign, uh, I should say, the, the defense minister who spoke to Taiwan's parliament about this and was questioned about our report uh, earlier today, he did confirm that there are American military personnel training Taiwanese military personnel. But what he said is they're not based here. This is just a, you know, a routine cooperation to- sort of thing, trying to diffuse any sort of reaction from Beijing, Julia. Fantastic job with this interview. Fascinating timing as well. Will, we look forward to watching more of it later on on programming too. Will Ripley there. Now, I just want to show you uh, live pictures of U.S. President Joe Biden. He's arriving on Capitol Hill as we speak, as we were mentioning with Christine Romans there, trying to rally Democrats around his economic agenda and the negotiations, obviously, that are going on with the broader spending plan. That before he jets over to Europe for discussions with world leaders in the COP26 meetings this weekend, too. So vitally important moment for Joe Biden to get out there in front of his caucus, talk to them about the need to coordinate and to agree on simply what's going to be in this spending bill. So we'll uh, see what comes of that. But for now, you're looking at live pictures as he uh, walks and attends uh, those Capitol Hill meetings, vital meetings today. Okay, let's move on. Feeling the heat. Executives from ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron and Shell are oil are all in the hot seat, testifying before the US Congress about alleged disinformation on the climate crisis. Renee Marsh joins us now. Two questions for me, and great to have you with us. The first is, to what extent we see questions on disinformation that was allegedly provided by these oil majors in terms of the reducing the extent of the impact on climate change as a result of fossil fuel use, but also what they're doing today to try and tackle climate change. What can we expect? 
Yeah, so good morning, uh, Julia. Nice to be with you. Yeah, this is going to be a historic day in the sense that we've actually never seen something like this ever happen before, where you have the heads of these major oil companies here on Capitol Hill answering these tough, direct questions about climate change, the role they played in it, and whether or not they covered up the dangers uh, about climate change, and as well as the connections between greenhouse gases and fossil fuels. Uh, you talked a lot about this documents and evidence that have come out over the decades that suggest uh, perhaps a cover-up by the industry. Uh, I can tell you that that will be the foundation of much of the hearing today. We expect to see um, documents. Many of them have already been out in the public sphere already, uh, but we do expect the Democratic chair of this committee, Carolyn Maloney, to tie everything together that has come out really over the past uh, more than three decades, uh, and they will be asked about it. Uh, you should also expect to see a different line of questioning, quite frankly, from Democrats. Uh, versus Republicans. I think from Democrats, you're really going to see them uh, moving with an assumption that there was an act of disinformation. And on the oil executive side, I do believe that you're going to hear a lot of pushback. Uh, from Exxon, for example, I know that they are prepared, the uh, CEO of Exxon, Darren Woods, is prepared to point blank say that the company was never involved in any disinformation campaign and all of their uh, comments on climate have all been truthful and factual. But again, um, he will receive pushback from members of Congress who are coming with those so-called receipts in the form of documents uh, that show uh, back as far back as 1977 and 1978 where Exxon's own internal scientists had been warning about the dangers mm. of climate change. Uh, so the question will be, why isn't the company further along as far as their investments in greener energy solutions? So we are expecting a, a lot of fireworks here, uh, and that is getting underway probably in about another hour or so from now. And Julia. we shall wait and watch it. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, so to come on First Move, cashing in the chips. The CEO of Chipmaker Global Foundries on going public amid a global semiconductor shortage and green dreams. The Australian iron ore billionaire behind Fortescue Metals says green hydrogen will turn his company carbon neutral by 2030. He'll join us later on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and another bullish batch of Q3 earnings boosting U.S. markets. Futures bouncing as drugmaker Merck delivers an upbeat forecast. We've also had earnings from heavy machinery firm Caterpillar that topped estimates too. Ford also a standout pre-market rising almost 9% after raising full-year guidance. Assurances too that the chip shortage affecting car makers will ease soon and they're managing the supply chain concerns. Apple and Amazon results are also out after the closing bell today, so something else to watch for. Now the debate around the best ways to protect our planet have never been more potent. And this weekend, leaders of the world's biggest nations will be in Glasgow for the COP26 summit. And crucial to that meeting, 
the World Bank. They are the largest financier of climate action in developing countries, and they're planning to provide $25 billion on average annually over the next five years. The organization also warning why we have to start now and we have to do more. They're warning climate change will push more than 130 million people into poverty by 2030 and force up to 200 million people to migrate by 2050. Alarming stats. Joining us now, World Bank President David Malpass. David, it is always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you once again for joining us. Um, We have much to discuss, as always, but I do want to start with Sudan in light of recent events. Um, The World Bank has decided to suspend cash disbursements disbursements following what's happened. And I know you were the first World Bank president to recently visit Sudan, I think in the last 50 years. So you know better than most the challenges that the nation faces at this moment. What do we need to understand? And what does it mean for the Sudanese people that this money now has been suspended? Hi, Julia. Thanks for raising it. You know, as we think about development in the in poor countries, it's individual countries going in different directions. So unfortunately, uh, Sudan's uh, taken a, a, a giant step away from the transition that they were doing. They were transitioning from a from a dictatorship uh, to a to a civilian led government. Uh, so I'm deeply concerned about the developments of this week. We suspended our, our uh, disbursements and the development of new programs. Uh, but for the people of Sudan, it's critical to get uh, get on track and to have a restoration of the transition process. I was there at the end of September. I talked with both the civilian and the military leaders. They stated that they were committed to this transition. Uh, but now we've got uh, a, a, a full break uh, in the progress on transition. So I'm hoping for restoration. And that's vital for people. Have you had any outreach We've made clear uh, that we can't interact uh, for, uh, on, on our current programs. Right. Uh, you know, they, on Monday they cut off uh, they cut off the internet and the uh, and the cell phone systems, uh, and so it's uh, it's been hard to have outreach. I think they're they're uh, uh, well. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, it, uh, all I can say is uh, gravely concerning, and uh, you know, there's got to be a restoration of the transition process to the democratic government. Yeah, it's an important message. Um, David, obviously part of that negotiation for Sudan, but it's a much bigger point as well, was on the debt situation in in poorer nations. And just to be clear, that debt already rose to a record last year, I believe. You've got the stats, $860 billion. um, And you're warning it could worsen as a result of higher inflation, higher interest rates. Um, We'll talk about measures to, to address that. But just how worried are you at the World Bank as you look around the world and you see the impact of rising energy prices, rising prices, and nothing about this feels transitory at this moment? Right. It's it's uh, it's an, a highly unequal situation. You know, the advanced economies are growing per capita income at five percent a year and the uh, the low income countries at only 0.5 percent a year. So that's the opposite of what it should be. If you if you wanted the developing world to catch up, which is what every everyone wants uh, to be fairer and to be, you know, more healthy for the people in the poorer countries, they need to grow five five percent, you know, 10 times faster 
that or or a multiple of the growth rates in the advanced economies and instead it's one tenth as much uh, so that's concerning across the developing world and the debt burden just adds to the problem up 12 percent uh, even while the G20 has been trying to have uh, debt relief uh, processes begin for the for the low-income countries it's so important, and I know, David, you feel very passionately about this, that the debt reduction discussion needs to be had. It also is vitally important for what we're going to go on to discuss, and that is allowing some of these poorer nations room to tackle things like climate change and invest appropriately for stronger, more sustainable growth in the, in the future. Which nations are holding these discussions back? You know, the debt, the composition of debt has changed a lot over the last 10 and 20 years, heavily toward China being one of the, 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 the biggest official creditor and on the private sector side, more of it there. So it used to be the big creditors were the United States and France and Japan, uh, no longer, no longer the case. Uh, so all of the creditors have to get together and recognize that it's in everyone's interest to have a debt relief process for the countries that. That, uh, uh, that don't have sustainable debt. That's particularly important now with the global supply chain problems and the inflation problems, which really all hit the poor uh, around the whole world, but especially in the poorest countries. Yeah, I think you said it there. China is the largest creditor critical to this debate. Um, Let's talk about climate. A, you know, yeah, no, please. I'm going to Rome. Rome actually today. I'm. Uh, I haven't started packing, but I will, and I'll be in Rome. And uh, the the world leaders are there, uh, and I hope they will talk about this process to get it back on track of having a process toward debt relief. Uh, we've uh, the IMF and I, Kristalina and I have uh, have proposed the idea of a standstill on debt if countries are have hit the wall. If they have an IMF program and their debt is unsustainable, let's stop taking the money that, you know, the creditors need to stop taking the money. But over this last two years, even of the pan pandemic, the money keeps flowing even from the poorest countries to these relatively wealthier creditors. Yeah, it's insanity. All nations have challenges, but we have to do something to address this. Um, David, thank you actually for that message and for making that point, because it is vital. Um, Let's adjust to climate because another critical piece of the jigsaw puzzle, particularly because the poorest nations not only have to make the greatest chunk of investment, but they also feel the impact of climate change most keenly as well, for the most part. Two thirds of the world's adaption finance in 2020 came from the World Bank. And what we're talking about there is um, simply just adjusting to the effects of climate change, not even the mitigation steps that are required to try and bring or lower the carbon footprint. Um, you're saying you're going to provide $25 billion on average over the next five years. It's a fraction of what's required. What more do we need from governments and also critically the financial sector and the private sector too to tackle this? Part of it is more resources, and that's from a variety of sources. It can't be that the World Bank alone is doing yeah. a quarter of the burden, which is which is what's in those numbers that you gave there. Uh, so there needs to be a lot more resources. That means private foundations. That means corporations. They they want to be putting in to this global solution. Glo uh, you know, it's a global public good. So that means everybody bears uh, some uh, some of the burden of it. Also, we need to be very focused on the. Big 
big emitters. Uh, there has to be a, uh, a recognition that that, that uh, giant chunk, chunks of the uh, pollution problem comes from a narrow group. That's, for example, leakage of methane. Uh, that alone is a big problem. Or and in the coal in the in the coal sector, a few of the coal-fired uh, electricity generators uh, are producing a big percentage of the of the carbon dioxide uh, uh, emissions. And so those can be fixed. Uh, there has to be a focused effort with a lot of resources. Another thing I'll mention, Julia, is the incentive structure for the world. It, you know, as the world community wants to move toward uh, toward a cleaner environment, uh, there has to be incentives uh, that uh, that make help countries make that shift. One of the things going on, I'll just mention, and you know, I think people have to be specific in what they're talking about. Diesel generators are a big a big problem because the grid isn't working in a lot of countries. So the the rich put in a diesel generator, corporations do that, uh, and those uh, have uh, have a lot of pollution uh, associated with them. So we need to have a process where this immense amount of resources is marshaled by the world uh, to a focused set of problems that will really have an impact. That's not really the process that we're in right now. It's more, it's more unfocused. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think another fact, and I'm bombarding our viewers with them today, but it's important from your reports, developing countries will need an estimated $4 trillion per year in investments up to 2030 to build infrastructure to meet their development needs. Just putting the numbers out there and the scale of what's required here in general, even just a piece of this being climate action, I think shows that we need concerted action, which is why everybody's meeting in, in Glasgow um, this weekend to have the discussion. Huge. Please. And I'll be focusing yeah. on that specific point, the need for a pipeline of projects. That's both mitigation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also adaptation to help countries uh, be ready for the changes uh, changes in their outlooks. And both of those cost a lot of money and they have to be prioritized in terms of how you use the money. So the World Bank can play a role in the middle of that, helping uh, design the projects or, or and work with the countries so that the incentive structures are improved, but a huge amount of the money uh, has to come from, uh, from, from, the, from the advanced economies themselves. I studied it actually back in 2009 when the World Bank issued their first official green bond. And I was looking at the stats and the latest I can find is around $157 billion worth of green bonds in 2019. We need to be scaling that up too. And investors actually actively investing in bonds rather than central bank government bonds at times. I think things that we know directly go towards green good. Um, we have about 30 seconds, David, because I'm very conscious that I have to let you go. Um, Greta Thunberg often says there's a lot of blah, blah around um, climate action and sustainability. What does success for COP26 look like in your mind? Well, COP26, I think, is bringing people together and there'll be a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, talk about uh, things. I, I hope what it can do is focus on this idea that you have to have concrete projects that you're talking about in specific countries as that will change the greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, if, you, if you don't get to that, then a lot of what you're doing is these abstract numbers. Yeah, a lot of talk and not direct action. And that's precisely what we need to see. Um, so I'm going to let you go. You have to go and pack 
more especially. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Please take what you need and uh, safe travels. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for flying the flag Thank here you, and Julie. for the work that Bye. you and the team are doing. Thank you. David Marpas there, Thanks president much. of the World Bank. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running. Call it a turnaround Thursday. The major averages rebounding after a pullback from record highs in the previous session. Little investor reaction, actually, to today's weak GDP numbers. The U.S. economy slowing dramatically over the summer due in part to a weaker consumer and slower U.S. government spending. Disappointing numbers, perhaps, but no surprise to investors. Also, as we've discussed, looking backwards, now we have to look forwards. Jobless claims also out today, hitting a fresh pandemic low. Encouraging news for the Federal Reserve as it inches closer to trimming monetary aid, perhaps as soon as next week. Other central banks also taking action too. Brazil's central bank in focus, raising interest rates by a greater than expected 1.5%, its biggest rate hike in almost two decades as inflation there soars. In the meantime, chipmaker Global Foundry is ringing the opening bell at the Nasdaq today amid skyrocketing semiconductor chip demand. The Abu Dhabi-controlled company is the third largest chip manufacturer in the world, and the listing values it at a cool $26 billion. Now, we've been following Global Foundries quite closely this year, and I've twice asked their CEO about a potential IPO, and twice he fobbed me off. Well, no escaping this time. I asked him what this moment feels like. Well, third time's a charm, uh, Julia. (laughs) Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting for our shareholders. It's exciting for our 15,000 employees. The the reception by by just world-class fund managers uh, to to the stock. It's just a a great day for for Global Foundries. It's an important moment to IPO. As you've pointed out, it's a critical moment for the industry, uh, for the global economic recovery, too. We've talked about your investment plans and ramping them up going forward. What difference is this money going to make? No, it's a big part. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part to uh, alleviate the chip shortage. And, uh, you know, over the next 2021, 2022, we're going to be spending approximately $6.5 billion in capital uh, ex- expenditures. And uh, at least half the proceeds from this, from this IPO are going to go to fund some of that growth. So it's a really important part of our growth strategy. Two questions, I think, that arose in the run-up to this um, IPO, and I want to tackle them individually. The first one is, is a technical point about your ownership, and you said it, said it in the prospectus. Um, Mubadala, the state investment fund for the UAE, is going to continue to have substantial control, which could limit your ability to influence the outcome of key transactions. I do sound like the prospectus because I'm, I'm reading from it. What do investors need to understand about this ownership and how it may or may not influence your plans going forward? I think they need to understand this is a, an ownership that's very strategic and patient investment. Uh, and the type of investors we attracted are long-term investors. You know, it's not Mavadala getting out as much as bringing others in to help grow this company. And uh, you'll see them over time in a very transparent and thoughtful way take down their ownership uh, uh, as we build this company and partner with the other long-term investors we brought into this asset. So you're saying their participation at this moment is a benefit rather than a risk, and people need I to see that. I, I absolutely think so. You need like-kind, like-minded uh, investors. Okay, and then the financials, because naturally people have been poring over the numbers, they've made comparisons to people like Taiwanese or Taiwan Semiconductor. 
and they're saying, look, we don't necessarily see a path to profitability, that you're less uh, profitable on a relative basis to some of your competitors out there. What can you tell us about the financials and what we need well, to understand there too? Very good. I think our third quarter kind of put that to bed. Uh, the, the financials speak for themselves. You know, we're profitable and we'll be, as we grow our top line, to continue to drive that, that, that profitability um, uh, going forward. I think the uh, time will tell. And uh, we're very excited about our future and our ability to drive our business. So in terms of operational break-even? Excuse me? In terms of operational break-even, just the timing and, and making that sustainable? Because I, I get your point about the last quarter, but I think making that sustainable and then pushing forward, is that where we are now? Yes. Uh, if, in our most recent filing, we showed our third quarter was operational uh, uh, positive, and that will continue to grow. Okay, good. And the other thing I want to ask you, we are heading into a weekend of COP26 discussions. You as a company have said, look, we're going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 25%, obviously from 2020 to 2030. Are you going far enough? Well, you have to put that in perspective. We're reducing it 25% as we grow our manufacturing output 1.6x. And so it's a much bigger uh, um, uh, decrease in our carbon footprint. And, you know, we're not doing this, you know, uh, without a concerted investment. We'll spend about $75 million over that same horizon uh, to create that, uh, that, that uh, better carbon footprint. So it's not about the magnitude here. It's about the, uh, the scale with regards growth happening at the same time for the company. Um, I want to end on a positive note. Irrespective of how the stock trades today, whether it goes up or whether it goes down, what do you want people to take away from this moment, whether it's investors, some of your suppliers, those that you deal with in the industry, and obviously your workers too, who also share in this moment as well? No, I, I want everybody to understand that this chip shortage is, is painful for everybody in the industry. And GF's going to continue to do their part to be thoughtful uh, partners to our customers and, and be good corporate citizens as, as we build this company. This is just you know, one, one milestone for our company as we continue on our journey to excellence. Uh, Julia, thank you, thank you very much for having me this morning. The future begins now. Tom, <laughs> congratulations today. We'll see you very soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, Australian mining tycoon Andrew Forrest pushes to go green. Quite a gamble for an iron ore billionaire. He's up next. Welcome back to First Move with Big Oil accused of climate disinformation and the UN warning of a climate catastrophe. The Australian iron ore magnate Andrew Forrest is trying to turn the tide. His aim is to transform his $30 billion company into the world's biggest green energy provider with a focus on green hydrogen. What is that? Well, green hydrogen is produced using renewable electricity to break water down into hydrogen and oxygen molecules, blue hydrogen on the other hand, comes from superheating natural gas, and critics like Forrest argue that's no better than using fossil fuels. In a drive to decarbonize, the company's using hydrogen-powered drilling rigs and trucks. It wants to turn its mining operations carbon neutral by 2030. All of this as the company reports profits of $10 billion thanks to sky-high iron ore prices. Iron Andrew Forrest joins us now. He's the UK head of COP26 in Glasgow. Wow, Andrew, great to have you with us. And that was a lot of information. Um, I think the bottom line is you're a man on a mission and you're trying to do it, what, a decade earlier than some of your competitors. Talk us through 
your vision here and, and how you're going to achieve it? Thank you, Julia. Look, what we need is the big heavy emitting industry, not just the fossil fuel sector. The fossil fuel sector has to be held to account. But all our customers, people like me, you know, I burn a billion litres of diesel a year. That's not even to mention the maritime or, or bunker oil, which we, which we also burn in our ships. So it's companies like us who must turn green and do so with a real plan and then help our customers turn green. So we're, we're already running huge haul trucks, huge mining haul trucks on green hydrogen. We're, we're commissioning train engines right now running around 70 to 80% on green ammonia. Same with ship engines up to almost 100% green ammonia. So all of this we know can, can switch to zero emissions fuel. As I look through the entire industrial supply chain of the world, there's nothing which we can't meet with green electricity, green ammonia, green hydrogen. I'm putting my company out there as the first major heavy, heavy emitting company to prove that yes, you can save money, you can also make money by going green. Come on industrial world, let's make this happen. We're the culprits, we should be the saviors. You know, a huge part of your uh, carbon footprint comes in the haulage, which is what you're describing. And I know you got your team together and you invented the world's first, I believe, hydrogen fuel cell haulage uh, truck. And you did it in what under four months, I believe. But there are limitations on how far that can go. And I think one of the, the most uh, vocal critics of hydrogen fuel cell technology, just specifically for, for vehicles, is Elon Musk. I mean, I think he said fuel cell equals full cell. Why are you so confident that hydrogen is the best way forward? Yeah, look, Elon's only talking his book. He, he has factory after factory just set up to do batteries. That's about to become superseded by the hydrogen fuel cell. He needs to switch and not kind of bait the market with falsity. That's a false so, call. He's, I mean, look, can you really blame him? He's, he's, he's built these huge factories. They can only make batteries. He needs to switch really fast to hydrogen fuel cells because he knows for sure all a battery does is take energy out of the grid, which certainly all over the world and in North America is dirty. So he's doing nothing at all for climate change with batteries. What we need, if you want to drive a million kilometres, a million miles in North America without a molecule of carbon, a battery won't do it. What will do it is green hydrogen into a hydrogen fuel cell. Now you can drive a million kilometres without a molecule of methane, a molecule of carbon, and you can go wherever you want. So hydrogen really is that future, and a hydrogen fuel cell for cars is definitely that future. I mean, Elon Musk is not here to defend himself nor his business, but you have made this important point. And the distinction I tried to make in the introduction between uh, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, because you've been very critical of those that are saying, look, you know, even if they are interested in hydrogen, it's the wrong kind of hydrogen that they're talking about. You've also been pretty critical of the of the Australian government that's looking at carbon credits for fossil fuel projects, for um, carbon capture. And you're saying most of the time, actually, that doesn't work either. It's a lot of money being invested in the the wrong technologies and de facto greenwashing, I think, as a result. Yeah, look, that's a very fair statement. It is complete greenwashing. You, you're so much better off just burning the carbon, burning the coal, the oil, the gas in the first place, not only emasculated into hydrogen, um, which is why Elon Musk makes a point. You know, that is a very inefficient way of growing hydrogen, making it from fossil fuel. He gets that part right even if it gets hydrogen fuel cells wrong. 
what we all know that if you make hydrogen from a renewable energy source, that, can go on forever, that will never run out. And that is becoming cheaper and cheaper as we speak. I haven't noticed that about energy from natural energy prices. There's only one energy which is coming down in price, and that's hydrogen. So that's the one we ought to back. And anything else, I have to tell you, as a scientist who studied this, it's greenwashing. You're better off just burning the coal, the oil, the gas, and not bothering turning it into hydrogen. I mean, Andrew, you're going to be at COP26. Is this going to be part of the discussion? Because, you know, as I look around the world, the point that you're making, I'm not sure, is, is misunderstood. And there's so much misinformation, I think, about what's good, about what's bad. How critical do you think this is to the discussion of how we're investing between now and, and 2030? Look, you had really great leaders like Margaret Thatcher and George Bush the first, who warned the world early that global warming was coming and we needed to act on it. You had this massive uh, fossil fuel lobby even dampen the sound of their voices. Flip forward 10 years, sorry, many decades time, you come to today, the same playbook is being played out. Hang on, hang on, give us a chance and let us be like uh, the typewriter. Let, let the typewriter please be saved by the personal computer. Give us a chance to transition as the typewriter. Let us keep polluting, polluting your planet furiously, but so long as we're okay, we don't have to change. Just wait till we get to retirement as that busy little oil and gas executive. I'm saying actually, Technology has changed. Energy has changed. If you subsidize oil, gas, and coal, then you're standing in the road of change and you're cooking the planet for your kids. You, don't, you cannot do that with a clear conscience. No matter the arguments about transition, as I've said, no one asked the typewriter if they're going to get any funding from the personal computer. You know, it just got replaced. But there is an interim period where we still need fossil fuels while we're investing in renewable energies. Otherwise, we're going to face worse energy costs and prices than we're seeing today. If we get the transition wrong, never mind cooking our planet in the future, we're going to have social unrest if people can't afford energy costs in the interim. It's a balance, surely, too. Julia, so exactly. So let's be honest. Let's be absolutely honest. Let's not hide it behind blue hydrogen or grey hydrogen or, or pink or yellow or whatever you like. Let's just say you make 10 to 16 tonnes of carbon for every tonne of hydrogen if you burn it from fossil fuel. That's the fact. If you want to say you clean, why don't you just accept a challenge that you'll only make one tonne of carbon or methane for one tonne of hydrogen. Now, the fact is they're going to struggle to do that. So let them just burn the oil, burn the coal, burn the gas. Let's not force anyone to try and make this flat-out global warming lie called blue hydrogen. Let's let green hydrogen create a huge hydrogen market. Give it time. Don't confuse it with blue or grey because that's really there to stamp out green. And I would say to all of us, if you're interested in making a buck, making a better business, being practical, implementable solution to global warming, back green hydrogen and let the fossil fuel sector just live out its life. And you're critical to this discussion of tackling climate change is China. And I think there's a lot of concern out there, particularly as we see them ramping up uh, coal 
mining in order to try and wrestle with the high prices that they're facing too. There's a concern about their commitment to climate change. You understand the country very well. Clearly, you know them too. What is the commitment, particularly from the younger generations in China? Are they committed to a greener future too? Yeah, look, one thing the the Communist Party does is, is listen to its people. We've all got arguments about how they might might try and tamper with the decision-making, but ultimately, at the end of the day, Chinese uh, rulers have always listened to their people, and if they don't, it's at their peril. The Chinese youth in particular, which we speak to, are all climate and environmental conscious. They absolutely get it. They wonder how the fossil fuel sector got such a huge tight grip on the world when there's such enormous resources which they are building. And that's something which I find a little confusing about China. They're building up huge green resources. They should be telling the world about that. They should be proud about that. And their, and their younger generation should know, actually, there's a very strong green future in China. It's just got to be encouraged. Yeah. Oh, we have so much more to discuss. Um, Andrew, please come back and talk to us if you can make time as as soon as you can after COP26, because I want to um, hear more about your discussions and and some of the feedback that you got and the the work that you're doing. And I also realize I named you incorrectly because you recently got a marine ecology PhD. So um, I can only imagine the amount of work that took at the same time as doing what you do for Fortescue. So Dr. Andrew Forrest, thank you so much for your time. And please come back and talk to us soon. Chairman. Great to chat to you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, sir. We'll speak soon. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a final look at the action on Wall Street. The major averages higher across the board and inching once again towards records. The Nasdaq rising for a fourth straight session. Some key earnings, of course, after the bell today. In the meantime, Ford, a big blue chip winner, currently up nearly 12 percent. It's raising 2021 guidance for the second time this year, and it will begin paying a regular dividend once again in the current quarter. Investors liking what they see there. eBay, on the other hand, saying shares falling sharply after warning of weak fourth quarter revenue growth down just over 7%. And finally, on First Move, movie fans on the internet are going crazy about the first trailer for Buzz Lightyear's origin story. Do a backflip. Oh no, it's a cat. Oh, the Disney Pixar animated adventure follows the real space ranger who inspired the toy from the Toy Story franchise. In the film, Buzz is being voiced by actor Chris Evans. Lightyear is due to hit theaters in June 2022. It was a cat doing a backflip, I believe. Okay, time for me to buzz off too. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.